Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 97 of Suncast. They're going to put a, a SolarCoin transactional wallet up in one of these data centers, and we will you know, send the currency back down to Earth. The target is to send it into what are physical SolarCoin wallets, coins or tokens, load them up, so it'll be the first currency transaction from space. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome, solar warriors. Welcome back to Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson. And every week, we show up to provide you, tomorrow's clean tech leaders, with insights and ammunition to carry you through your daily battles. So thanks for tuning in and get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. If you've ever wondered how blockchain can be used in the energy sector, more specifically in renewables and solar, then today's episode you won't want to miss. Now, if you're a regular listener, I am honored to have you back. And if you're a new listener, I'm equally grateful to have you with us. And I encourage you to check out some of the other fantastic interviews that we have with other great solar leaders like Jigger Shaw. Dan Sugar, Ed Fio, Stephen Lacey, and the list really goes on. And speaking of past episodes, I sure hope that you have had a chance during the hustle of InterSolar, or yet another week of summer activity, to listen to the latest two-part series with Kyle Cherick. You know, his wisdom exceeds his age, and his experience has given insight and guidance to many. We'd both love your feedback, so let us know your reaction to it on Twitter, we're at Nico Mayo, that's N-I-C-O-M-E-O, and at Kyle Cherick, that's Cherick with two R's and a C-K. Suncast this month is brought to you by CPS Americas, also known as Chint Power Systems. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters with over two gigawatts shipped in America. CPS is known for feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team supporting CNI and utility applications. Newly minted on that nimble team is my friend Carlos Abad leading the LATAM strategy. If you are worried about your current inverter supplier or you're just stuck with legacy leaders, please take a look at CPS. They are investing in America and you can count on them. And if you somehow haven't seen it yet and you're still here at InterSolar, they have the largest booth at the show. So swing by and say hi, and tell them Nico sent you. Today on Suncast, we get to dig into one of the topics that I've featured on the Hot or Hype segment often, blockchain and energy. Nick Gogarty is the founder of the first cryptocurrency specifically targeted for solar power asset owners. Nick is also often traveling. He's quite the road warrior. So instead of waiting for the perfect time, I grabbed some time with him while he's on vacation. And the audio does suffer just a little in this interview due to a slower internet connection. But I'll be sure to get a better one-on-one with him in Anaheim in September. 
or SPI. Now, the topic of blockchain and energy is often confusing, and I wanted to go directly to the source to get some answers to my most burning questions. So stay tuned as I learn how valuing currency globally applies to cryptocurrency and the difference between a credit bubble and an asset bubble and why that matters for crypto analysis. Macro applications of blockchain, the underlying theory of currency, and how Nick and his co-founder even decided to focus on solar among the many alternatives. We go into the nitty-gritty of exactly how SolarCoin is structured, from staking claims to proof of stake, including who's buying and using SolarCoin and why that matters. We also answer your questions posted to us on Twitter and LinkedIn. So thank you for being a valuable part of the Suncast tribe. Your contribution and questions really do matter and are what make our tribe and this podcast valuable. If you've been listening to previous episodes, then you know that back in episode 86, I invited you to join the Suncast tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings into the world, please do check out that episode or you can head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Become a Member button where you can learn more about that. All right, Solar Warrior, on to the show. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day, your week, your chores, your commute. I am honored that you're here. Please enjoy this week's episode, which is sure to be an instant Hall of Fame, Suncast with SolarCoin founder, Nick Gogarty. Today on Suncast is going to be a fun ride. If you've been listening to any Suncasts for any period of time in the last, call it six months, you know that in my hot or hype section, I ask about blockchain. But the reality is I've had zero, zero true pioneers or experts on blockchain on the show to date. Well, that is about to change. Nick Gogarty is a specialist in emerging technology, economics, and behavior, and has over 20 years of experience in fintech, blockchain, forex, and innovation. He's an advisor to the world's largest institutions like hedge funds and banks, G20, prime ministers, the UN, and the list goes on. He is also the inventor and founder of solar energy reward cryptocurrency, SolarCoin. And today, we are going to geek way out on this topic. Nick, stoked to have you on Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Honored to uh, have a chance to share some thoughts. For sure. And I'm also grateful for guys like Florian at DL Piper and James Ellsmore for helping make the connection. Thank you guys for continuing to connect Suncast with the leaders on the front lines of this global battle. So as we think about how to enter this conversation, I don't want to jump right into SolarCoin. I'd like to hear a bit from you, Nick, about your background, I understand that way back in the 90s, you were trading mostly in Forex, but you've got a background in not just financial markets and trading, but energy. And I'd love to hear how you've come around to the solar industry and a bit about your background in that regard. Sure. I'll start even a little farther back than that. My first degree is actually cultural anthropology with a focus on sustainable economic development where the question I was really interested in, you know, why do some cultures get wealthy and some seem to be trapped or relatively trapped in a poverty trap? After that, my background is primarily finance and tech and fairly deep in both of those areas on the finance stream, master's degree, MBA with a focus on quantitative approaches to trading and hedge funds. 
have worked with one of the world's largest banks doing quantitative modeling around foreign exchange, trading on a desk in London, have worked with one of the world's largest hedge funds, also am an Ivy League author for Columbia University on macroeconomics and value investing, you know, obviously the inventor of SolarCoin. On the tech side, I have had startups for many years, different startups, nothing anyone's ever heard of in terms of, you know, massive exits. So I like understanding things and coming up with solutions, understanding from first principles, most basic stuff. That's all about me. Back in the early to mid 2000s, you were working at Fertile Mind Capital as an analyst, right? which you just mentioned. You're focused primarily on consumer goods and renewable energy, and notably called the credit bubble in 2007 as an analyst beat the S&P by 90%. So you've lived through one global crisis. I'd love to hear your perspective. How would you compare the global financial crisis to what many consider right now the bubble around cryptocurrency? Sure. And, and, I'll, and I'll give a caveat. Fertile Mind Capital was a very small hedge fund. And I was like the, the junior guy there. So, you know, it was you know, not the road to riches, but I, I did make the right assessment and call, which many others did as well. And so in that role, my job was to try and understand renewable energy. And at the time, I, along with some of my team members, recognized that asset prices were getting way, way out of hand um, for houses and that there was a credit bubble associated with that. And so we positioned things accordingly, albeit with a very, very small amount of money. Basically, the distinction between that scenario and the current one is, first and foremost, the nature of what might be overpriced. 2008 was a credit bubble, i.e. there was too much money or bonds, effectively in the form of mortgages, that was overpriced relative to the value of the houses underneath. Now, what we have now in cryptocurrency, um, one could argue, at least in the near term, could be considered um, an asset bubble. And basically, uh, like the you know, dot-com era, are people having too much expectations of the value of those assets? Now, finance is a look-forward process. And so what you have to do is you have to have a theory of sort of value of the thing, and then you're making a projection on what that value may be in the future. And so for credit, it was the credit bubble back in 08 was people really way overestimating the sustainable value of a home. We can pretty much estimate what house prices should be, and they were out of hand to the tune of 6 or $7 trillion in the U.S. The asset bubble with cryptos, if there is one, because you can only see it in retrospect, is tougher because you have to have a theory of value for how to value a currency. And there's a project I'm working on right now where I'll be delivering a co-author of a paper that will be delivered to MIT in a couple of weeks that proposes a theory for how to value a currency. And that's a really interesting thing. Because currently, traditional economics does not really have a theory for how to value a currency. There's a very sloppy uh, theory using velocity of money, which is incredibly weak and really doesn't stand up to most empirical analysis. I definitely appreciate the distinction. Thank you for that around an asset bubble versus a credit bubble. Many, including myself, may not have made that distinction prior. So that's insightful. Among the many reasons that I wanted to have you on the show, of course, is the conversation around SolarCoin, and SolarCoin is a way to take advantage of the idea of blockchain. Now, the thing for me that stands out and I'd like to start with is how did you decide of all the things that blockchain can be applied to back in 2014 that solar was the right vehicle? I'll start with the macro and then we'll work our way down. It was kind of a, a process of, of intuition. So the first application for blockchain, which most people know of, you know, is, is Bitcoin, and it, it still is pretty much the killer app to date. There are other applications, but I'll, I'll stick with that one. So when that was released, I did some work and came up with this theory of value for a currency. 
and realize that the way currencies are valued, effectively, is to understand that a currency is a, a shared collective phenomenon. Everyone agrees to use this protocol or mechanism for exchanging value or trade. And as such, you know, the value emerges from that. We go into details on that later. But then I thought, well, okay, how do we apply that to something interesting? If we're going to create some value, like Bitcoin has value as of today, it's about $100 billion. Let's apply it to something interesting. So I, I made a list, and again, trained as a cultural anthropologist, trying to see things as neutrally and as objectively as possible, and saying, what are absolute goods that groups can use almost an infinite amount of? My short list ended up becoming education, energy, and healthcare. You know, the example being that no one looks at a country and says, you know, they're overly educated, or they've got too much energy, or they've got way too much healthcare in that country. Then, knowing that my goal was to boot up a network or a currency, collective holders, you need to have a quantifiable, easily quantifiable, and collectively to mechanism for distributing that currency. Energy is nice, universal units. You know, megawatt hour is the same around the world, no matter where it's produced. How it's used and what its value is is a different thing, but how it's produced and measured is the thing. So I decided to, um, you know, apply it to energy. And then, of course, we narrowed that down to renewable energy, which is kind of, you know, more of a, a benefit. And then when we look at, we want to boot up a network of users, then we quickly get to solar. Solar being, you know, the cheapest and most, let's say, democratically distributable form of energy. Anyone can join in and put some panels on the roof. People have asked about wind coin, geothermal, et cetera. I, I was a formerly a, a renewable energy analyst for hedge funds. Solar is the only one that makes sense. If we were to do a wind coin, we'd end up with, you know, a network of two or 3,000 finance companies uh, being incentivized versus the you know, millions of people behind solar. Wow, that is fascinating. I never thought about the distinction between the potential users and who would be in the exchange mechanism. Really, really appreciate how your process of macro to micro here, that is super helpful. You uh, didn't come up with the idea alone, and you've mentioned we several times. Would you mind spending some time on who you co-founded SolarCoin with? How did you choose each other? You know, my co-founder is named Joe Zatoli, and he has a background primarily in finance. Chose each other because we'd known each other for a few years, and at one point, kept bumping into each other in New York at some finance meetings, Kaya Group, and he asked me, you know, or suggesting currency and energy as an interesting thing. He says, you know, to back a currency, you really should use energy. Well, okay. And I didn't really understand currency at the time. It was 2010, 11. But finally, he kept asking these questions. And I said, okay, let me think this through and write a paper. Just because I find writing is an excellent process for clarifying one's thinking. You know, it's almost like a, a meditation. And then you get feedback, which is so useful. So wrote a paper called the Deco Paper with Joe and went through and thought through how a central bank works and a currency, et cetera. And from that genesis, thought about it, then didn't really realize what Bitcoin was and revisited it back in late 2013, went back to John and said, okay, let's go with this. One of the things that's good about working with him, and I would suggest this anyone who's looking for co-founders, well, a couple of key things in your co-founder. One, incredible amounts of trust, because you're basically both going to be in a foxhole together through dark and scary periods, and you have to just trust that person's instincts, ethics, etc. And then the other thing, or two other things that are crucial, after trust and values, you need to have differences of opinion, and you need to have the ability to disagree. Very important. So, you know, there's no reason if you're identical twins, effectively, in your thinking and process, because one of you is redundant. You know, I think it's a paraphrase from uh, Winston Churchill about a meeting, right? Where all think alike, none thinks much. Everyone's on autopilot. What you want is insight. You want to have someone who's 
balance against you. So I tend to be you know, extremely creative and outgoing, etc. And Joe is extremely processed and disciplined. I should say extremely, but those are two areas of slight distinctions, but they're very good because they're complementary. So I would suggest, you know, for your founders, first find someone who's extremely values aligned, find someone that you can agree to disagree with and debate, and then look for, for you know, complementary skill sets as opposed to identical ones. Those are all uh, very important. I really appreciate how just succinctly you outline that list. And I'm taking notes here. I think that this is a great insight for anyone listening to the show that might be thinking about starting their own business or is currently evaluating, do I have the right team or the right people on the bus, right? Because you, you, as a founder, you kind of always have to be asking that question. Well, we could dance around the esoteric uh, ideas of how SolarCoin came into being for a while, but I'd rather hear, obviously, from the horse's mouth, if you will, the idea of SolarCoin and where it has come since 2014. So the original idea was, you know, we've got this cool thing, an economic externality, positive, i.e. the more people who participate, the more essential value that protocol or that currency has. And then the question is, okay, what do we do with that? Let's do good stuff. Solar energy was the answer to that. And then it's like, okay, how much, how? And the thinking was, well, solar is an interesting thing. And if we look at climate change, if you're going to do something, do it large and in a meaningful way and, and try to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So the idea was to use this positive mechanism as an incentive to incent the production of solar energy. You know, economics is nothing more than the study of, of behavior relative to incentives and choices. Set up a plan for 40-year global incentives, made an estimate, which is you know, crude, of how much energy will be produced over the next 40 years, something impossible to, to really know, but we made a guess, and created enough of these tokens that could be distributed over 40 years to the uh, planet, and then came up with a mechanism for distributing them. So the underlying technology is a fork of Litecoin, which is itself a, a derivative of Bitcoin, with some unique traits. Probably the most unique being that we use an algorithm to maintain this, this network of, of tokens that is extremely low carbon and energy efficient. Our crude estimates and, and guesses about the resource use, including electricity, chips, and servers for Bitcoin, is about, now it's around 3 to $5 billion a year to support this network of 30 to 50 million people, roughly. We estimate that if our network scaled to a similar size, we'd be using about a quarter of a million to half a million dollars worth of, of resource. That's a factor of 10,000 times more efficient and obviously aligned you know, with, a, with a carbon-friendly um, you know, solution to, uh, you know, to, to uh, solar energy maintaining our network. We've presented it to the UNFCCC, who oversees the climate change people, and we're actually members of something uh, that's spin out from the UN called the uh, Climate Chain Coalition. So basically applying these types of tech to do interesting things around climate change. That's really interesting. Let me dig into that a bit around blockchain. So it sounds like the underlying technology with regard to the blockchain that you guys have created as a fork of Litecoin might have additional uses beyond just SolarCoin. Is that accurate? That's correct. So basically what we've done is, you know, the blockchain itself serves one function, which is a token. So people can trade this SolarCoin, but also it's a large data structure that can be written to and it's open. And so there's some really cool things being done with that. We've got people who are directly writing from their inverters production data right onto the chain. Now, that's cool because if you have a financial offtake or someone else and you need to verify the production of energy, it can be there publicly for anyone to see and it can never be changed. We also have people who are using it to store immutable uh, copies of documents. We have talked to the UNFCCC in Bonn. They, they're the UN group that oversees the, the climate talks about potentially using it to record carbon credits. 
or even trade carbon credits. So our technology supports a tech called Color coins. So in theory, you could trade carbon credits or other things or represent them using our blockchain. So it's this cool open source resource that people can play around with and experiment with. We are also members of the Climate Chain Coalition, which is a UN group that explores with multiple industry group partners uses for blockchain tech to help climate change. I'd love to hear why you chose forking Litecoin and proof of work as opposed to Ethereum or EOS. Some of that has to do with timing, you know, so we launched in 2014. So in, in crypto years, that's, you know, crypto years, it's like dog years times 10. So that's forever yeah, ago. Right. Um, and when we launched this whole idea, um, first of all, we're thinking 40 years out. And so we're trying to be, you have to be very, you know, as conservative as possible from how you treat your, your risk, your regulation, your tech, um, et cetera. And so we forked the most robust blockchain and tech available at that time, which was Bitcoin slash Litecoin. You know, as, as Joe Ito of the MIT Media Lab says, you know, the, the market cap of the currency is effectively the reward to hack it, right? So in right. theory right now, there's a $100 billion reward for anyone who can hack Bitcoin. If no one has done that yet, it's a pretty good indicator of its robustness, strength to date. So we, we use that tech. You know, I read the Ethereum paper two weeks after it came out. Very excited, posted a blog post about it, but, you know, it just wasn't there. The other thing that Ethereum is still an unknown thing is um, will they be able to migrate to a proof of stake, a la a low carbon mechanism. So right now there's still proof of work. And so, you know, that, that probably isn't quite aligned with the mission we're, we're going on. And obviously EOS and all the rest are, you know, so new that they weren't viable choices. So getting back to SolarCoin as a way for folks to take advantage of not even just assets that they're thinking about deploying, but that they've already deployed. First and foremost, my understanding is you get one solar coin for one megawatt hour, just like if it were a renewable energy credit. It's kind of one way to think about it. But what am I called if I start to use solar coin? Yeah, the, the reward is given or is granted, it's a conditional grant, but granted upon verification of one megawatt hour of energy produced. And that can be retroactive all the way to January uh, 1st, 2010. So if you've got a facility that's been around for a while, you know, literally you're sitting on potentially free money. Now, if you start using it or, you know, uh, let's say, um, you know, spending it or holding it or whatever, effectively you've joined the solar coin economy. The same way that if I hold dollars, I've, I've joined this, the dollar economy, that dollar network. You know, that's it. You become a, a, you know, a solar coin economic participant, a spender, a holder, a speculator, or whatever, you know, whatever suits your needs. As I recall from our previous conversation, the, the term is, uh, is called claimant, correct? Yeah, a claimant. And can you explain the process of becoming a claimant for those who might not understand it? Typically, we have a list of, of what we call affiliates on the website, uh, on the solarcoin.org website. And a person can you know, go to an affiliate that may support their local language, their region, et cetera. They can select whichever one they want and submit their data, basically to file a claim for the SolarCoin grant. And so the data required is um, what we call KYC or know your customer data and whatever is required to verify energy production. Now, that could be um, digital data from an inverter, or it could be um, paper documentation. We're moving towards an all-digital format. The data required isn't highly detailed. So we just need how big's your system, nameplate capacity, when did you connect to the grid, or when did you start producing, and then some uh, energy production data. And it's not high frequency. It could be you know once or twice a year. Every six months is when we typically bring it. Now, the reason that this is a grant as opposed to, you know, here's a contract or what you're getting is, again, from a risk perspective for the SolarCoin project, if we gave out 
solar clients like, yep, here you go. You're going to get these for the next 20 or 30 years, which you know, in theory, there's 40 years worth of them. And for some reason, we couldn't deliver them due to either a technical glitch or a regulatory change in a specific country. We'd be opening ourselves up to litigation. Also, many facilities have more than one, let's say it's an institutional funded facility. They may have two or three owners or they may change over time. And so that potentially puts us at risk if someone says, hey, I'm owed these things. The other guy is owed these things. So what we do is it's a conditional grant. And if there's ever a dispute around who should receive the grant, we just suspend the grant. And because it's signaled as conditional upfront, you know, the intention is to minimize our litigation and risk so we can do our job in terms of supporting all the world's solar energy effectively. Yeah. And, and what you mean by conditional is once you've met the requirements, then it is, then what's it called at that point? Is it, it's, it's then granted? It's granted, exactly. So we basically, it's, it's granted. And what we do is we take from a large pool of non-circulating solar coin and we issue it into circulation. By giving it to you, you can do whatever you want with it. You can spend it. And it's issued into circulation into the economy. So the current solar coin economy is, is 44 million solar coin that are circulating around on, on this blockchain. And is there a cap? Uh, yeah. And, and the cap is quite large. It's what's called the pre-mine. It's roughly 98 billion solar coin. And that 98 billion figure is reflective of our estimates of the amount of energy that would be produced by solar over the next 40 years. Now, that was back from 2014, so it's the next you know, 35, 36 years. Again, nobody really knows what the answer to that is because it's an exponentially growing curve. And can be taken into account when one tries to value solar coin based on 2018, 2019, 2020 numbers versus 2014, right? Correct? Correct. Correct. And so the, the, the thing is, when you try to value um, solar coin, obviously the price is easy, right? The price is, is the opinions of value at any given point in time. And then the value is a function of how big is the economic network of participants divided by the you know, number circulating. You mentioned applying for solar coin. You go through KYC. Having been in the, on the utility scale project side, I'm familiar with KYC. It's a financial term for know your customer that many, certainly multilaterals go through to make sure that they're not getting uh, equity owners that are involved in money laundering or, or have uh, problems. So my biggest question around that is how does KYC scale for residential where you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users? Again, approaching things from first, first principles perspective, we try to understand all of, our par- all of the parties involved in the ecosystem and what their needs are and objectives. And one of those parties across the multiple countries we operate in, so right now we're in 62 countries distributing these things, are regulators. And if you're a financial regulator, the question is, well, why KYC, right? And financial regulators are primarily protecting against three things, tax evasion, money laundering, and fraud. So we need to understand that and then support those efforts. So what we do is we have a, a light KYC for claims that are under a certain threshold. So if you're the average homeowner with a small facility, five to seven KW on your roof, for example, the amount dollar-wise of solar coin that you may be claiming your initial claim is probably under $100. From that perspective, we probably don't need to know every single thing about you, your national ID, etc. If we can verify your phone number, your address via the documents, that's probably good enough. You know, again, because at $100 threshold, the tax evasion issue probably isn't a big enough one for interest for many people. Money laundering, probably, again, there are other things to be doing than other, you know, taking $50 of a solar coin and doing something. And on the other side, fraud. Because we verify the energy production and there's no money being received because solar coin are free, you know, there's not a significant issue there. Now, when we step up to larger facilities, like we just granted 
to one of the world's largest energy production facilities, 160 megawatt CSP plant, concentrated solar. That's a whole other issue. You know, we need to know who's behind that corporate entity, the ultimate beneficial owners, powers of attorney. There's a whole list of documentation. And for those listening, they should know that if you engage in a solar claim program, you know, that data is protected under GDPR. So we're using European data protection standards to try and protect the privacy of the individuals. The only time uh, that that data would be, let's say, transferred or shared is if a recognized regulator um, asks us, for example, why did you send whatever the amount is, you know, $10,000 to country X, to person Y. Um, Our standards are we, we try to be able to make that data available within 48 to 72 hours to be good actors. And again, the reason for that um, for a 40-year program around energy and of the scale that we're planning on and working towards very quickly, we need to be good actors and we need to be seen to be good actors. You mentioned that you're distributed in 62 countries. Obviously, that is global and that is in multiple languages. You briefly hinted at the affiliates. Could we talk about the affiliate program? Currently, you have 14. How many are you targeting? And then what is a goal in terms of numbers of installs, solar installs that you have set? One of the things is if we look at this from a a problem set, and the problem is how do you distribute and verify energy production globally over 40 years? A centralized organization just can't do that. So all of the the ethos of cryptocurrency and blockchain, we try to decentralize as much as possible. We're constantly working towards greater decentralization. The first level of that is what we call the affiliate program. Affiliates are, are primarily individuals or let's say primarily corporations small groups who agree to help distribute and onboard others who are producing energy globally. What ends up happening is is an individual group says, hey, I'm going to help onboard people who speak my language or in my country. They help us keep track and they, you know, their responsibility is to keep track of the legal and regulatory requirements in their specific regions or countries that they're helping to grant. And they do the outreach and the localization, whether it's, you know, language or framing etc. So right now we've got, I believe, 20 affiliates that we're in the process of onboarding. The goal is to probably get north of 200 high-quality affiliates to provide that global um, outreach. Also, what this does is by having distributed affiliates, it allows the individual claimant, you know, the individual who owns a solar panel, to select whoever's going to be most useful and effective for them. Now, when a person finds an affiliate and they look at them and say, hey, help me claim my solar coin, one thing they should realize is the affiliate will never charge them for that. There should never be a charge to receive a SolarCoin claim. And that's done so that SolarCoin is never confused or associated with being a security that's being sold. Now, some affiliates offer extra services, custody services, security advice, tax, legal advice, but that's how the program works and it's scaling in an interesting way. The last part of your question was in regards to you know, how many installs do you want to go for? I guess it's in the mission. We'll go back up to the first, the first line, you know, one megawatt hour for one solar coin. That's global. That's 40 years. So our target is 100% of solar installations globally. We just announced a partnership with SMA, one of the world's largest inverter manufacturers. They have a monitoring platform that basically all the inverters send their production data to this monitoring platform. We're looking at having, you know, a one or two click solution where anyone who's got SMA monitoring their production data can claim their solar coin. An indication of the scope and scale of that, SMA monitors 25 gigawatts of energy. They bring in terabytes of data a day, and that's over 300,000 installations. 
to the best of our understanding, that's just north of 5% of the world's solar energy production. So our goal now is to partner up and, and get the other 95%. Unlike Rex, unlike other forms where a project owner trades one thing for another, SolarCoin is 100% additive. You don't give up your environmental claims. You don't give up any cash. You don't give up anything else. This is 100% in addition to all the other benefits that you get. Correct. And, and just for clarification, yeah, we, we've spoken with um, the EU on their GO project or Guarantees of Origin. We've spoken with uh, DOE and others in the States and clearly explained that, you know, the way this runs is we view any solar facilities having three streams emerging from it, a black stream, a green stream, and an orange stream. The black stream is the cash flows uh, that flow out of from selling electricity. Pretty basic, right? Here's just some energy, here's some dollars. The green stream is in any environmental attributes that flow out of the sale of, uh, you know, that panel's asset. So that's Rex, SREX, carbon, blah, 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 you, you name it, or feed-in tariff. Those are the green attributes. And then the last one is, you know, we'll call the, the orange or the yellow attributes of that stream, and that's SolarCoin. Those things can be independent. Um, SolarCoin is independent. No one gives up anything in exchange for it. It's not an either-or. You keep all the other streams, do whatever you want. We don't really care or worry about them. Right. In the same way that someone who is exchanging Rex doesn't give up the capital stream that comes off of it, as you refer to the black stream. Yeah, I get correct, that. Correct. 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 And then what the heck can you do with them, right? Right. Exactly. So what, do we, what now? <laughs> yeah, I, I got these things, right? What do I do with them? The interesting thing is that's where the fun part of, of an open system like a blockchain takes over is we're booting up an economy. And there is a small economy of people who uh, will accept SolarCoin for services. So there's a PR firm, um, some environmental services firms, and there are exchanges. And so you can trade these things, you know, 24-7 into Bitcoin, into dollars, into anything else, just like a currency. It's a small economy, but we think it'll grow in a meaningful way. For context, you know, we are going from thousands, substantially hundreds of thousands of users, and then millions. The size of our economy and the value of the circulating solar coin, we anticipate to scale proportionally. So we're going to go from this small economic project into a, a much more an interesting, meaningful one. You know, we've had an exponential trajectory from, from zero, effectively, a tiny base over the last four years. This is the year where we really professionalize and scale, more digital. And, you know, when I say scale, you know, 50 times scale. Imagine a you know, hot dog stand that's doing, you know, a million bucks a year. You know, a year, year and a half later, it's doing 50 million. That's what we're looking into. This is the first I've heard that folks are actually uh, accepting SolarCoin and sort of a light bulb went off. I would love, love, I mean, I'm going to figure this one out. I want someone to pay me for services in SolarCoin. I'm going to, I'm going to actually put that on my goals for 2018, 2019. All you got to do is download a Coinami wallet or the QT wallet. These are the, on our site for free. Generate a QR code, pop it on your website and people can send you SolarCoin and they'll put a little message in with the message, you know, I send you this. So yeah, we have a PR firms. Aqua Power, one of our partners, which I forgot to mention earlier, or one of their claimants, is a $25 billion a year revenue electricity generator, the largest one in the Gulf. And they actually pay some of their uh, second and third tier environmental services suppliers. I love that companies like Aqua are beginning to adopt the solar coin and the idea of blockchain as an additive measurement. But there are some creative ways that we've discussed where others, even like nonprofits, are beginning to use SolarCoin in, in creative ways. Can you explain some of the interesting ways that you see SolarCoin being exchanged? The great thing is there are, uh, they, they came out of our community, just emerged, right? This is a brilliant thing of, of an emerging economy. 
is some charities. And so there's a charity uh, that we made an announcement about Inner Solar that accepts solar coin, and then they use them to build facilities in Africa and parts of Southeast Asia. There's a charity based in the UK that does similar activities. Because they can then transfer, they can exchange it for Bitcoin and then exchange it for capital. Oh, for dollars, yeah. Right. And there's even a really cool uh, crowdfunding site in South Africa called the Sun Exchange, where you can take your solar coin and you can reinvest them in solar projects down in South Africa. So you can, you can basically send them, they, they literally sell single cells in a project. So you can send them $7 and you'll get your yield in uh, dollars or euros, but they accept Bitcoin and solar coin. So it's a full circular economy, which is kind of cool. That is awesome. There is a, a separate entity called Solar Lux. Can you help differentiate between the two? Sure, sure, sure. Solar Lux is one of our affiliates. And so the Solar Coin Foundation has a pretty simple mandate. Incentivize solar energy for 40 years by issuing one solar coin per one megawatt hour. SolarLux is one of the affiliates that reaches out, explains the program to large corporates, and onboards them. And that large corporate may be a monitoring platform like SMA or a large producer like AquaPower. Were they responsible for, for either of those? Yes, they help facilitate both of those. Wow. Again, it's, it's one of these decentralization where you know we don't have the reach they do or the connections, and it's all about community and network. This leads back to the affiliate relationship. We didn't mention, I don't think specifically, how the affiliate gets paid. Could you mention that? Because I think if you're, you're targeting 200, someone listening to this today is going to th- say, hey, I'd like to be an affiliate. So the way that works is we know from an economic perspective that you know, if you make a large facility, if I put you know, 50 megawatts in a field someplace, that's incredibly efficient. We have an, an economy of scale, right? And scale. So what we do is we assess, the Solar Coin Foundation assesses a 10% tax to any facility you know, over 100 kilowatts, and that is called the network development fee. And so if, in theory, you're going to claim, you know, 100 solar coin, you'll end up getting 90 if you have this big facility. The other 10 go to a public pool called the network development fee, which is run by the, the Solar Coin Council, group of affiliates, and my co-founder, myself. That's used to pay for the software, pay the engineers, so our team works and operates on solar coin, and it also goes to pay what's called bounties. So an affiliate, if they can onboard someone and they can say, hey, I brought you know, Joe Smith's solar farm on board, they get the equivalent of 10% of the first year's solar coin claim for helping with the KYC and the explanation. So the affiliates are, are for-profit that are out there um, doing the onboarding. And the process of becoming an affiliate, the bar will be going up. But right now, you can, you can submit an application. Um, there's a little bit of a discussion, signing of an MOU, et cetera, on the solar coin website. More folks ought to be applying for that. It seems like a great opportunity. SolarCoin uh, expects to be the first orbital currency. Can yeah. you explain a minute about that? <laughs> sure. Well, so this, the project I mentioned you know, a little bit earlier, this, this electric chain, which is this open source project around different things in IoT, has lots of fun projects on it. And, and one of them was a project came to us um, via talking to someone at NASA about having the space station claim SolarCoin. Space station has 85 kilowatt you know, panels, uh, nameplate. That didn't happen because getting anything to NASA takes time. And, you know, the, the small symbolic value of the solar coin for that wasn't going to be worth it. That being said, we ended up being contacted by a company called Space Belt, which is a startup that's going to put floating data centers into low Earth orbit. They just raised $25 million from uh, Richard Branson. Uh, I think the, the birds of the satellites are supposed to go up in, in 2019. Offer, and our deal with them right now, is they're going to put a, a solar coin transactional wallet up in one of these data centers, and we will, you know, send... The currency back down to Earth. The target is to send it into what are physical solar coin wallets, coins or tokens, load them up. So it'll be the first currency transaction from space. 
Sweet, sweet. Well, I think that's a fun tidbit about what's happening on blockchain generally and how how creative people are getting with how the distributed ledger is going to impact the world. So with that, we'll move into a section I call hot or hype. I know that you will have some interesting answers here. And I have uh, slightly modified, if you look back at the list of questions, slightly modified it, but we'll go into number one. I'll name a specific market or topic and you can spend 30, 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or all hype. The first hot or hype microgrids and the future of transactive energy mixed <laughs> it's my answer hot hype or hope uh, first of all there are a lot of people chasing it and some really bright people we work with them and know them you know closely work parallel with them you know it, it could be a group lo3 you have the energy web foundation etc i think microgrids are going to be super interesting i think the place where they'll probably take off first is what i refer to as the energy deserts you know that's the one billion people in the world without energy or reliable electricity those places, there are no barriers to entry. People are generating energy with diesel at 60 cents a kilowatt hour. Here comes cheap solar. Boom, let's go. And that's Africa and, and Southeast Asia. So, you know, some of those microgrids are going to be, you know, they'll, from the Western perspective, they'll look junky and cheap and whatever. But from an impact perspective and changing people's lives, it's going to be awesome. And so we actually kind of work with and watch that space closely. And just personal interest of mine. So I've advised, you know, you know government of Bangladesh, you know, talk to a couple of other countries about that. We think it's exciting. A lot of the startups in the space, there's a lot of hype around it. Some of that hype is the funding, right? So ICOs were and still are-ish kind of an easy way to raise money. And so there've been a lot of people who've gone after the, the transactive energy space. Some of them legitimate, hardworking, awesome. Some, you know, just chasing, chasing you know, other people's money. I think if we look back, I think there'll be great stuff. I would just advise anyone to be very careful about what you do, but there's some great projects out there. The next uh, topic, hot or hype, the nexus of renewables and electrification of the automobile industry. This can be massive, massive and misunderstood. What I mean by is I, I've given um, presentations to, to you know, government officials and, and, and large um, financial institutions and, you know, and small groups as well, but where I think the three things for what's called the energy transition, it's huge, are um, uh, solar storage and blockchain. And the reason solar is, is interesting, I'll explain this. As part of my research for my book, came across an interesting phenomenon which I didn't appreciate as much called the experience curve. The experience curve is like Moore's law. Basically it's like, hey, every time in the way it works is falling, every time we produce twice as much of a thing, it gets some percentage cheaper. Every time we produce twice as many solar panels, they get twenty percent cheaper. It's called Swanson's law, Wikipedia, etc. Same thing works for storage. Every time we produce so much, we double the amount of storage produced, it gets X percent cheaper. What does that mean? Well, we've gone from storage, the first Tesla at like $1,200 a kilowatt hour back or seven, eight years ago, we're going to be hitting $80 a kilowatt hour. We're going to be shipping a lot more storage, which means those costs will go even more, drop down more. It's going to radically change energy. If you're an incumbent where you've, you know, you're used to 20 year, 30 year planning cycles, Silicon Valley is showing up at your door. Energy is a commodity business. Nobody cares what your tech is. It's who can give me the cheapest electron with some degree of reliability. And the storage equation is going to be massive. And to give you an idea, you know, there was huge, huge noise for those in the space around Elon Musk and Tesla shipping a 100 megawatt battery to Australia, putting it on the grid. And, you know, it solved a lot of outage problems. It looks like it's, you know, it's paying itself off maybe in a year and a half or two. It's an incredible ROI. That's a 100 megawatt battery. The context, we're looking at shipping 
on the order of 200 to 300 gigawatt hours of storage in electronic ve- or electric vehicles. We ship more electric vehicles out. The cost for batteries declines, and those batteries may be used in storage applications on the grid. The other thing that people aren't aware of is car batteries, depending on the tech, become, let's say, unusable after about six or seven years. They have to be replaced, and, and the re- depending on whose tech it is, right? The reason is because they don't discharge fast enough for the car and recharge quickly enough. They can be repurposed and hung on a wall. So what you're going to have is, pardon the pun, but literally a wall of cheap storage coming where all of a sudden these batteries will end up getting taken out of cars. They'll be put on people's walls. Or in industrial applications, that changes fundamentally how much renewable or intermittent power a grid can use and the shape of that grid. That means smaller grids become viable, more uh, solar and intermittent power becomes viable, and we're talking about huge and seismic impact. The downside to that, and, and needs to be acknowledged and understood, is there will be potentially trillions of dollars of what are called stranded assets or lost assets in the traditional fossil industry. It's going to be very painful for those debt holders and those companies, and, and, and that just needs to be acknowledged, that there are going to be huge issues. There will also be massive political backlash. It will become an important right for people to generate their own electricity and not have to be on the grid and expect that to happen because those incumbent utilities will have trillions of reasons to try and maintain their business models. So look for that in the next three to four years. We could spend an entire episode probably just on this topic as well. Notwithstanding, we're going to move on to the next one, which is right, is, is just a layup for you, but hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. Again, I'm going to answer um, <laughs> both, um, but there's definitely a lot of hype. In the space, a lot of money has been raised. We'll have to see what works out of the model. And, and, and one of those things is that tech can be interesting, I think, for, for basic energy trading and tracking. Uh, so as the average size of an energy transaction goes from X number of megawatt hours down to potentially trading kilowatts uh, hours and you know, transaction times that are, are measured in you know, seconds, that'll be interesting. What a lot of the hype is, is that the tech's going to be ready faster than the regulators and some of these industries are ready for it. And so you need to make sure that whoever's going after it, there's not a funding mismatch where it's like, hey, our tech is ready in a year, but then the sales process and an onboarding and acceptance actually takes you know, two or three. So it'll end up happening here. My own thesis, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is there are three things that are going to radically change this space, blockchain, storage, and solar. Solar is known, cheap energy. Storage, Obviously, makes it easier to to, to re- replace baseload. Blockchain is the reason that um, the reason I say that is going to be interesting is trading and transacting. So, if you go from a, a gray streams or let's say brown streams of energy that are centralized and shipped out right now, coal, you know, from a big power plant pushed to endpoints, to what I call a smart packet energy environment, you need a blockchain. And a smart packet energy environment is the following: I've got a car with 80 kilowatts, right? 80, 80 kilowatt hours of storage. My car or I know that I'm only going to use 20 of them today because I'm just commuting. That other 60 kilowatt hours is a resource and the battery doesn't take much intelligence for it to say, oh, I think I'm going to dump my uh, electrons. You know, I'm, going to, I'm going to pick them up cheaply from wherever, home, on the grid at a certain time, and then I'll dump them. Now multiply that times you know, a million transactions and trusted nodes. The only way to really do that is, is have a blockchain. Uh, so you have the trusted endpoints and you can maintain the tracking of those transactions. Um, but yeah, batteries will end up charging uh, and changing themselves. You know, imagine Uber, right? Does Uber as a transaction platform become a big energy player? Does every parking lot become the equivalent of a beaker plant? And again, it, it's happening 
so fast. I mean, I, I listened to a group in the solar energy space in Munich, and they were talking about, you know, gosh, things are happening so fast in solar energy. You know, boy, next five years is going to be wild. And of course, living in the blockchain space, it's like, okay, what happened in the last five days, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to drill down to that because if, if you're still listening to this, you are truly geeking out and I hope that you're <laughs> enjoying it. One of the common pushbacks around blockchain and energy is energy transactions take place in milliseconds, nanoseconds. And sometimes they take place, you know, intraday, et cetera. And blockchain by its very nature is a registry that that for the purpose of proof of work takes longer periods of time. How does that translate to something that needs a millisecond transaction ratio? The physical transaction level, you know, to keep, let's say, voltage up on a grid, et cetera, doesn't always happen that fast. So when Tesla put its battery down in Australia, 100 megawatt hour battery, they had a problem down there because that battery responded in, in milliseconds and the spinning generation took minutes and the billing software was minutes. And so Tesla was like, you guys owe us money, right? Because you're not tracking it. Grid Singularity, which was one of the earlier players in this space, they have stories about energy transfers that involve um, buying power in advance, one or two days in advance, based on, you know, weather patterns, demand or expectations, and then settlements involving Excel spreadsheets and months. Improving that isn't tough. And then on the flip side, the blockchain tech, most people are familiar with Bitcoin, like, oh, a transaction takes 10 minutes, takes, you know, 60 minutes to resolve. Well, there's a lot of new tech coming out that allows you to do transactions in significantly less than that. It's like Ethereum is six to eight seconds. The other thing is, is you can do a tech, I won't go deep into it, called um, a state channel or an off-chain transaction where you track the smaller transactions off-chain in the traditional environment. It could be as fast as any database out there. And then you just kind of write the net aggregate large transaction, maybe at the end of the day, at the end of the hour, whenever, to the chain. So the blockchain will be able to support high-speed and broad um, transactions. And that tech is just getting better all the time. So you've got billions of dollars and literally hundreds of thousands of engineers going after and solving that problem. You've completely blown up my uh, hotter hype section because my last one always is solar plus storage, and we've talked about it more than we need to. So I want to introduce a new segment that is a questions from the Suncast tribe, I, as you are, uh, am getting more involved in Twitter lately. And I had asked for folks to kind of give me questions. What would you ask Nick Gogarty? And so I want to read a couple of those. But we'll start with uh, my friend Tor Valenza, aka Solar Fred on Twitter. And he says, besides Smappy, which is a technology and a company that we've highlighted in a previous episode, what other monitoring solutions are going to be recording SolarCoin? You know, the whole SMA monitoring platform is a case in point. And it's called Sunny Portal. And, you know, it's 300,000. The other thing is people can roll their own. So you can write a script that hits an end phase inverter or an SMA inverter and then submits a request for that information. So, you know, any inverter that's pushing out IP could in theory be connected. If people have projects they want to create around that, they can do it. We'll end up talking to more monitoring platforms and inverters. We're actually just trying to keep up. And if you want, you can even uh, run a Raspberry Pi you know, $10, $20 computer runs on three watts of energy. You can run a full version of the SolarCoin software on that and, you know, read the energy from an inverter and treat it like your own data logger. Well, similarly, John Weaver, who writes for PV Magazine, his Twitter is at solar in mass, asked, what can blockchain do that SolarEdge doesn't already do? I can see production from SolarEdge hardware live all over the world. I trust them. Most inverters have the same ability. So let's clarify that for John. A couple of things. One, the immutability. So the record is going to be there in theory forever for as long as the, the chain is there. 
The other thing is if a person wants to write anonymously, they could publish their data in encrypted so that they hide their data, but it's from a trusted endpoint, and then someone else could have that decryption key or a group. So it's interesting. It's, it's publicly available. It's like, a, it's, like, it's like a graffiti wall, right? So I could write an encrypted message on the graffiti wall, and then you know I could give 10 people the decoder key. So it's public. We can all trust where it came from, and, but I don't know what the message is. So there's some interesting things that can be done. And again, the other cool thing is this is an open resource. So anybody can use it for whatever they want to, whether they have an existing solution or not. Javier Mozo down in Chile, uh, J-I underscore Mozo, says, what is expected in the impact on revenue by implementing SolarCoin? Current, pessimistic, optimistic. And then his follow-up question was, can a platform with blockchain structure replace an energy market? So we'll take those separately. You gave a great answer on Twitter uh, around the $25 megawatt hour example. So we'll, I know you're going to jump in right there with what's the expected impact on revenues for project uh, equity owner as an example. Sure. So for those familiar with uh, project finance around solar, which most plants are financed, there's a debt and equity component. And usually the person who takes the highest risk is, is called the equity player. The debt player investing in a solar you know, gets, gets a fixed um, rate of return and the equity player gets the yield from the, from the production and resale of the energy. So for example, let's imagine a solar facility um, similar to one that AquaPower did selling energy at $25 a megawatt hour, right? They've sold it for 20 years going forward. The equity tranche, let's say they're 10% of that deal, is gonna be receiving two and a half dollars for the next 20 years per megawatt hour produced. And assuming that they've already done all their financing, they've you know, sharpened their pencil, got their homework, they're going to have some rate of return, probably between 10 and 20% on that, right? Because they're, they're the developer building the project out and all the rest and doing it, managing it. Now, if they're receiving $2.5 for selling that energy per megawatt hour, SolarCoin right now, you know, as, as we're talking, is, is trading somewhere between 17 and 20 cents. Not huge, but as a portion of $2.5, if they get the claim, they get the whole thing as the equity participants. It's material. It, it swings the return on equity. If SolarCoin goes up in value to you know, a price it once had very briefly, $2, $3 for whatever, you have a real material impact return on equity. Now, the, the assumption with that is that that price is somehow stable and exists for you know, 20 years go forward. Who the heck knows? So when we talk to project finance guys, we always say, you know, if you're interested in SolarCoin, put a line into your model and you're, you know, put a row into your uh, spreadsheet. You know, call it SolarCoin on the revenue side and assign it a value of zero. It's an option with, with pure upside. The whole goal behind SolarCoin is that we grow the economy to a size that the value of the currency is interesting enough to be an interesting and important marginal incentive. So that someone who's thinking, I'm going to do these panels or this, I'm on the fence. Um, oh, there's this extra incentive. Looks stable enough. I can, you know, I'm willing to take a little bit of a, a, a bet and I'll put more panels on. Now, the wild, wild, crazy scenario that I'll show that it's you know, out there, so it's interesting the following. When Bitcoin started taking off and, and it's huge now, one group of people is really angry with it. And the one group of people were gamers, PC gamers, you know, kids playing video games and, and adults. And the reason they were so angry was because the mining process, very computationally intensive, people started buying GPUs, graphic processing units, specifically to mine Bitcoin. And they pushed the prices up, pushed the prices up to the point where you couldn't get some of these video cards. And the gamers were upset. Like, you know, those Bitcoin people were taking our graphic cards. Imagine a scenario if in the future, the price of solar coin were high enough that people actually were putting panels on their roof to get the solar coin and the energy was the nice to have. At a certain price point, that's a potential um, viability. That's a way out there scenario. But, you know, we've also gotten SolarCoin, which has gone from half a cent in price 
up to, you know, 15, 20 cents in four years. So it's increased by 40x, right? And so is another 40x, you know, it doesn't violate the laws of physics is what I'll say. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. That is fascinating. That is fascinating indeed. Kyle Cherick, who we just uh, highlighted on this show, his episode was the most previous one, is asking, no doubt there's value opportunity in blockchain and energy, but who will be the first to actually build one and not just talk about it? So I'll say besides SolarCoin, there are a couple of people out there who are, are building them, and most of them are, are the proof of concept stage, right? So you don't hear about them. They're large utilities. We'll call these the folks to watch. Yeah, folks to watch, proof of energy. I mean, one of the um, earlier uh, utilities that's aggressive out in the space is RWE, large German utility. Um, the Europeans are, I think, taking the lead in this. The hub or the biggest you know, conference for this is called Event Horizon. You have the Energy Web Foundation. They're doing some just really cool and aggressive stuff. I would advise anybody wanting to, you know, see who's out there and taking the lead, go look at the Energy Web Foundation um, with uh, Ed Hess and Anna Trobovich um, and see who's joined that. And those are some interesting people to watch who are, are, you know, shipping at the proof of concept. There's still no industrial deployments yet, but, you know, that takes time. Well, fascinating. I love it when Solar Warriors here on Twitter are sending us questions. We've got another one coming up with an author of a book that we highlighted on negotiation, Chris Voss, where we're doing the same. And you guys are giving us great feedback that uh, we're integrating into the show now. So thank you for that. And thanks for thanks for being active on Twitter, Nick. I think it's uh, extremely valuable. I'd like to know what one unconventional thing did you do that others thought wouldn't work, but it did? I think the most unconventional thing, it was kind of our own discovery, was how small this project has to be to go to work. So to make an economy boot up, we're basically proving out that um, a couple thousand people is all it takes. When I started, I thought we maybe have to have you know hundreds of thousands before people would be working and you'd have a functional price and economy. So um, I think that's really interesting um, because it means that there are lots of um, experiments and groups out there that can uh, try similar things um, uh-huh. and do that. Very cool. I'd love to know if you have some insights as an entrepreneur that you'd like to share with us, maybe some key take takeaways or lessons from mentors in your life? Boy, I, I think the, the key is one thing is just get out there and do stuff. You know, there's this great quote from uh, Reed Hoffman of, of LinkedIn, where he says, you know, if you aren't embarrassed by your first product, you waited mm-hmm. to ship too late. <laughs> Basically, it's like ship, you know, do something, get out there and then improve it quickly. It's like if, if like you, you make a podcast, right? You produce. My guess yeah. is your first one wasn't probably your best one, but you kept going and kept plugging away. So if you have an idea, instead of you know, making the PowerPoint and you know, all that stuff, go make it happen. Make a bad version of it or a prototype and keep going. Nick, what's next for you? What corners are you looking around? Well, you know, um, SolarCoin, growing and scaling, because again, we, you know, we've got another 95% of the planet to wire up. And then, you know, scaling and then also helping do some, some more development work and potentially apply this concept and understanding to to try and influence more good things and, and learning. Oh, and, and the other thing is uh, publishing a book foundational to uh, uh, macroeconomics called Network Capitalism. So we're going to basically um, explain how currency and capital and all that works from, from a first principles approach. Well, you mentioned books and you're writing one. You've written one that perhaps you want to talk about. But before you do that, I'd love to know what book have you given away the most? You know, it's interesting. The, one of the books that I recommend the most to people to read is, is a book called Why Capitalism One in the West and fails in other places. It's by an economist named Hernando de Soto. And that specific book is really interesting because it indicates 
how there are trillions of dollars in the emerging world that can be realized for economic development and basically how a system of good governance and laws um, allows for economic progress. I mentioned you wrote a book. It's called The Nature of Value. Tell me a bit about The Nature of Value, why you wrote it, and uh, how folks would find it. Sure. It's published in uh, 2014 by Columbia University, the business school press. Um, they put out four or five years. The book is all about how does an economy work. It was a, a meditation, effectively, for your meditation process and thinking, you know, why do some companies win and others don't? I used to work for a hedge fund modeled on, you know, the Warren Buffett Value School of Investing. This was kind of trying to answer that question. The answer ended up being um, that the economy works like an evolving adaptive system. It has an evolutionary process analogous to biology, nearly as crude and simple as, you know, kill or be killed, much more nuanced. And it's, I think it's a really um, interesting book. It's, you know, I've given it out to um, government ministers, uh, different, different groups presented at different places. Nick, how can folks, we've mentioned Twitter a couple of times, but how can folks find you? How can they engage with you? Are you active on LinkedIn as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I am in the SolarCoin um, Slack, SolarCoin Group Slack, so you can sign up for that. Um, There's a SolarCoin Slack. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've got 2,000 people in there. It's a great community. Oh, no way. That's Fantastic. wonderful. You'll have to, can you, how, would you find, how would you get access to it? Uh, SolarCoin.org. Uh, Go to the site. There's a link. You can sign up. Okay, and I'll make a, sure a tele- that's linked. Yeah, and a Telegram channel as well. They're all on the site. Um, so we have an awesome community with some, some super bright and interesting folks on the Very blockchain cool. side, economic side, and the rest. Sweet. And your Twitter handle, your personal one is at Nick Gogarty. Yeah, at Nick Gogarty. And then the SolarCoin one, for the, just if you could spell it out so folks can find it if they don't are familiar with it. Yeah, um, I believe it's SLR underscore SolarCoin. We'll link to all of that in the show notes for those of you that are listening on your commute. Don't worry about it. As always, you can go to a blog page at mysuncast.com and click on episodes and you'll find it right there. Let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, which I mentioned briefly, is the impact of storage on the energy market. Literally, that is a multi-trillion dollar impact, and it's going to happen a lot faster than people realized. That is the most resounding message I think anyone listening to Suncast over the last six months ought to be getting. For those of us who have been in the solar game since the early 2000s, every time I press the record button, I'm reminded storage is now where solar panels were in 2006. And the game has just begun, folks. It's just begun. It's going to be a fantastic ride, Nick. You are going to be around to help propel it into orbit. And I'm grateful for this epic of a recording on how solar coin and blockchain will, in fact, be elevating the status of renewables globally. Thank you, Nico. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, uh, speak and, and share with your audience. We'll be sure to have you back soon and talk more about how SolarCoin's getting closer to that million systems milestone and the valuation that many of us hope that we will see. So uh, thanks again, and Solar Warriors. If this didn't satiate your appetite, let us know on Twitter. If there are other questions we needed to answer, please make it known. We'll be sure to have more blockchain advocates and experts dipping their toe into the suncast world and keeping you on the forefront of what's happening. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for checking out today's episode, Solar Warriors. And this week, we are here, as I mentioned, at InterSolar in San Francisco. If you are here, I'd love to meet you in person. Please swing by the Alliant Energy booth or hit me up on Twitter. That's at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. And let's grab some time together. And while I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. 
the fact that you're still listening means that you really enjoy the work that we're bringing to life. If that's true, would you please consider becoming a member of our Suncast Energy Tribe? Every week now, we are getting new members joining as Patreon monthly subscribers as well as annual members. You can join them. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member and check out the details. I look forward to formally welcome you into the tribe. Arms outstretched, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle. <laughs>